Hey guys, this is Margie Brown, an undergraduate student at Brigham Young University and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I bring to you The Priesthood Diaries, an in-depth look at the restoration of the priesthood. Hey guys, so today we're going to be talking about the temple in relation to the priesthood. We're going to talk about how temple restoration is involved with the priesthood. We're going to talk about what's different from back then to today, what's similar. So let's just dive right in. I'm actually going to start with baptisms for the dead. Figure that's a good starting ground because that's where the youth start. So let's go into that first before I jump into the endowment. Baptisms for the dead actually were not done in the temple initially. They were actually performed in rivers. It wasn't until 1841 that baptisms for the dead transitioned into the temple. The change came about because Heavenly Father told Joseph Smith that baptisms for the dead belonged in his house. We see that in Doctrine and Covenants 124 verses 29 through 32. I'm going to go back a little bit and talk about where we got our first discourse on baptisms for the dead. We learn about baptisms for the dead at a funeral sermon in the summer of 1840. Joseph Smith gave the discourse on baptisms for the dead, and he actually turned towards this woman named Jane Nyman. She had lost one of her sons and was very sorrowful that he wasn't able to be baptized when he was living. And Joseph Smith told her it was time for his work to be done. After this discourse, she did not wait to learn more about baptisms for the dead. She met uh, up with a man named Harvey Olmsted, and they went to the Mississippi River, and she was baptized in behalf of her son. There was a witness to the baptism, another woman by the name of Vienna Jacques Hayes. I hope I pronounced her name right, but I, I tried my best. Her first name's Vienna, and she was actually on horseback as she witnessed the baptism. Since this was the first baptism for the dead, Olmsted actually came up with the prayer on the spot. Joseph Smith heard of this event, and he said it was right. He pretty much was saying that God accepts our sincere efforts. Now, if we look at that in just perspective of what we do today, one, a woman was baptized in behalf of a man. We don't do that anymore. Women have to be baptized for women, men for men. This first baptism for the dead occurred in 1840. It wasn't until 1845 that Brigham Young said, men had to be baptized for men and women for women. I also want to note that there was no confirmation for the dead, for this first baptism for the dead. It wasn't actually until November 1841 that the church started implementing confirmations for the dead as well. Another thing I want to point out from this first baptism for the dead was that it was a woman that witnessed the baptism. Women can witness baptisms now. That was a change that occurred in October 2019. I just wanted to point out that the first witness to a baptism for the dead was actually a woman, 
And I feel like sometimes something like that could slip through the cracks, especially with the recent change and people not looking back on that. But I just wanted to throw that out there. Moving away from that first baptism, I'm going to look more into Doctrine and Covenants section 127 and 128 about baptisms for the dead. There are some things about policy in these sections along with some doctrine, so I'm going to go over them. There is one big thing about policy in these sections, and they're mentioned in both sections. It's the same thing. It's in section 127 verse 6, and then section 128 verses 4 through 7 is that there needs to be a recorder. On a doctrinal level, there are four things that stand out in these sections. And the first one is that it is binding on earth and in heaven. Two, it is necessary and essential to our salvation. That one I actually find really interesting because you would think, oh, baptisms are needed for salvation, so we're saving them, right? Well, in section 128, verse 15, it actually states that it is necessary and essential to our salvation, not just theirs. The third one is it creates a welding link of generations. And then the fourth one is it is part of the modern offering of the sons and daughters of Levi. These doctrines are still the same today regarding baptisms for the dead. Before I move on from baptisms for the dead, I do want to talk about one policy change that occurred in 2017 regarding baptisms for the dead was that the First Presidency announced that young men who are ordained priests can now baptize for the dead. They were already allowed to do baptisms, like regular baptisms for the living. The only change was that they could now do baptisms for the dead. Now moving on to the endowment, that actually wasn't first started in a temple either. On May 4th of 1842, the prophet began to administer the temple endowment to some of the saints in a store. Now, you got to remember that we're in the 1840s, so stores look drastically different than they do today. And it's not one of those urbanized stores in the 1840s. We're moving into rural America, so it's a rural store. For this particular store, there were floors and he administered the endowment in the upper room of this store. The reason why we know it's in the upper part of the store is because we actually see Joseph Smith record this in his journal, saying that he spent most of the day performing these ordinances. Now, I want to reiterate that when Joseph Smith were performing these endowment rituals in the store, it was in May of 1842. One of the reasons why this is so important is because a lot of people talk about the temple and then the practices of Freemasonry. Joseph Smith joined the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge, aka the Masons, on March 15th of 1842. Without a doubt, there are similarities between Freemasonry rituals and what happens in the temple. There are two popular theories about this, one being the apostasy theory, which is masonry is an apostate version of the original temple endowment rituals given to early patriarchs. The second theory is known as the adoption theory, which is Joseph adopted and altered effective Masonic elements and used them to communicate eternal spiritual ideas revealed to him. I'm not going to say it's one or the other, and I, I will say some people think it's a combination of the two, 
It may be neither of them, as they're just theories. However, I can say with confidence that it wasn't just Joseph Smith ripping off the Freemasons. I mean, yeah, he could have totally adopted things from the Freemasons, but I do want to point out that we got some elements of the temple introduced before Joseph Smith became a Mason in Nauvoo. Some of those elements include washing and anointing in Kirtland, and like keys to detecting true and false spirits. We have covenants such as consecration. This is before Joseph Smith became a Freemason. So before we say things that happen in the temple aren't really part of the church, it's more of the Freemasonry thing, be like, nah, it's definitely a church thing because Joseph Smith had some elements of the temple before he was a Mason. And if we go back to the adoption theory, it was Joseph adopted and altered these elements and used them to communicate eternal spiritual ideas. That could be the case as well. So before we make any assumptions about temples and Freemasonry, just know that there's some timeline things to consider along with the theories. If you go to the church's website on the endowment, it talks about the difference between the presentation of the endowment and the endowment. The church's website describes the endowment as a gift. The gift of the ability to re-enter the presence of God and receive of his fullness. And the presentation of the endowment is a teaching tool. The first presidency addressed that sometimes the presentation of the endowment changes. The first presidency told members that through inspiration, the methods of instruction in the temple experience have changed many times, even in recent history, to help members better understand and live what they learn in the temple. This further shows that the presentation is merely a teaching tool. On the church's website, it talks about how the presentation is supposed to help you understand some of the gifts you receive through the temple endowment. The website even includes the gifts that they want you to focus on through the presentation, and there's five of them, so the first one being greater knowledge of the Lord's purposes and teachings, two, power to do all that God wants us to do, three, divine guidance and protection as we serve the Lord, our families and others, four, increased hope, comfort, and peace, and five, promised blessings now and forever. The temple is super sacred, and that's why a lot of people don't even discuss anything about the temple, and that's why some people think we're so mysterious as a church. For those that are endowed, if you have any questions about what you can and cannot say, it tells you in the endowment, and then it also if you want to know what you can say, just go to the church's website. I mean, it's public information. Anybody can read it. The church knows that. And so just realize if you have any questions about what you can tell people, just look up the church's website on the Temple Endowment. Boom, right there. Easy to be able to communicate with people that have questions and what you can say in regards to the questions of those that are not endowed. Now, the priesthood and the temple are intertwined. It may seem super confusing about how I explain things, but endowment, just thinking about the endowment of power, the endowed power to be able to be with Heavenly Father again. And we see the use of the priesthood in the temple. Another thing to think about in the temple in regards to the priesthood is ceilings. The ceilings use priesthood power. For those that 
cannot go into the temple whether they don't have a temple recommend or they're not endowed if you want to see what the temple looks like you can also go to the church's website it has pictures among pictures of what all the rooms look like there are even some videos of church leaders walking through the temple another way to see what a temple looks like if you have an open house of a temple anybody can go you don't have to be a member you don't have to be endowed they will take you through the temple that's a lot harder to find but if the opportunity presents itself totally go through the temple amazing experience even if you are endowed go through the open house it's awesome just remember that you can always access images and videos of the temple through the church's website for those of you that have a temple recommend Go to the temple, um, do baptisms for the dead, or if you're endowed, do the other ordinances. It's necessary for you and your salvation as well as for them. And also see what you can learn about the priesthood while you're in the temple. Well, that's a wrap for today. Let the restoration continue.